Hi, this is Mark C. Crowley, and welcome to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Nearly 20 years ago, I was enrolled in a graduate-level banking program at the University of Washington, and it was there that I first read The Leadership Challenge, a book that's since become a business classic. And my guest this week co-wrote The Leadership Challenge and has produced five more editions since it was first published in 1986, and is one of the most successful management books ever written. The Leadership Challenge has sold over two and a half million copies. And before I formally introduce our guest, I want to read you two sentences in his book that absolutely stunned me when I first read them. So just listen to this. He writes, work is an experience of our soul, our inner being. Work is an expression of the spirit of work in the world through us. Without employing people's hearts, organizations lose precious return on their investments in people. All I can say is that when I first read these words, I was a senior leader in financial services and had no dreams at all of giving up that career or going on to write a book. But this idea that great leaders intentionally affect the hearts and people, their spirits, it immediately struck me as being a profound truth. And of course, I've only grown more convinced of this ever since. And so it's a thrill for me to welcome the inspirational Jim Cousins to the podcast Besides being a legitimate best-selling author, he's the Dean's Executive Fellow of Leadership at the Levy School of Business at Santa Clara University. He's co-written five other best-selling books with his partner, Barry Posner, and the Wall Street Journal has named him one of the 12 best executive educators in the United States. And so welcome to the show, Jim Cousins. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. And I remember that banking program in Washington very well. It's still going on all these years later, and I think they're still teaching your book, which should be an incredible honor for you. Well, it's an honor. We have been very blessed. Well, Jim, I'm just thrilled that you're here. And to get things started, I'd kind of like to know a little bit about how you got into this whole leadership guru role in the first place and the life experiences that influenced you to ultimately write the Leadership Challenge and, and actually all the other books you've written. Mark, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. My dad and mom moved there during World War II and worked for the government during the and, and after the war. My dad was in the civil service his entire career, so I was exposed from a very early age to government leadership and political leadership and kind of felt like my father was, at that time, my mentor in management and in administration. And so I learned kind of at his feet some aspects of management and leadership at a very early age. And then being a kid of the of 50s and 60s, I was strongly influenced at that time by the young President John F. Kennedy and ended up as an Eagle Scout serving in John F. Kennedy's honor guard when he was inaugurated president. And I can remember to this day the words that he spoke in his inaugural address, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And because of that, I decided that I wanted to do something in the Peace Corps. Our family was very involved, not only in United States governmental issues, but also in international affairs. And my mom was uh, in the um, United Nations Association and volunteered for that organization. So we were exposed to a lot of people from many, many different countries. So I joined the Peace Corps, and when I returned after being a teacher for two years, I decided that I wanted to continue to teach. I felt that that was 
more to fit my interests and skills than becoming an ambassador, which is what I wanted to do prior to leaving the Peace Corps. And so I decided to explore some work in training and development or adult education. And that led me over a series of jobs eventually to Santa Clara University, where I met Barry Posner, my co-author. And Barry and I found in as early as 1981, 82, that we had some common interests in values and common interests in corporate culture. And so we began to explore what it would be like to work together, wrote a paper together called Shared Values Make a Difference with Warren Schmidt, another colleague in the management space. And it was a result of that exploration that then led us to want to explore more deeply managerial leadership at the time. Since then, we've explored leadership in a lot of other domains, but managerial leadership. And there was a seminal event in 1983 as the director of the Executive Development Center at Santa Clara University. I had invited Tom Peters to come and speak. And he came to speak at one of the programs, and he was so popular because his book was about to come out, the book In Search of Excellence, which he did with Bob Waterman. And Barry and I were going to do day two, and Tom was going to do day one on excellent companies, and we were going to do day two on excellent managers. Now, Tom had a book, but Barry and I did not at the time. And so one of the things that we wanted to do together with the participants was explore an idea with them. We had some notions, but we told them, we want to know what you think. So as pre-work for that event in 1983, Barry and I asked the participants in this seminar to do a little pre-work. And we asked them to write a story. We said, tell us about a time when you're at your personal best as a leader. The time when you did your Olympic award-winning performance, your gold medal leadership experience. And they wrote these stories. And about 60 people in this seminar came and told those stories in small groups and then posted their summary of their findings from the discussions that they had on the hall wall of Kenna Hall at Santa Clara University's business school building. And that was our aha moment. We realized when doing a gallery walk down the hall and reading those summaries of personal best leadership experiences, that there were some common themes that people had experienced when doing their best as leaders. That eventually led then to the development of the Leadership Challenge, our very first book, and was the foundational book that then led to our other works on leadership, like Credibility, The Truth About Leadership, Encouraging the Heart, and a number of other books that we've written. Well, the question I have for you, Jim, is do you think this was meant to be? I'm just hearing this whole journey of yours. Do you think this is a purpose that you were born on the earth to fulfill? Or is it more of just coincidence that you ended up writing these books and doing this kind of work? I clearly had a set of values and beliefs that helped to determine a path I was on. Had I not had the parents I had who had guided me in some ways around civil rights, around a belief in peace around the world, a belief in engaging with people who aren't like yourself, from different backgrounds and having dialogue with those folks, I wouldn't have pursued, for example, the Peace Corps. And, in, and so every step along my journey has been guided by a set of values and beliefs. And one of those has to do with a belief that everyone has the capacity to lead. And finding that connection with Barry and his having a similar set of values and beliefs helped me to 
Uh, I had not imagined writing a book on this topic at the time, but that, I think, was, it presented itself with the opportunity to team up with someone who wanted to explore a similar topic. So I, I think you get clues along the way that you're on the right path. And just as I got a clue when I was in the Peace Corps that I didn't really want to be an ambassador, after all, but rather wanted to stay in education, that I got some clues as to what the right path was to continue to go down. Interesting. For me, leadership and leadership development is that path. Well, as far as I can tell, you and Barry were really the first authors to ever use this word heart in the context of leadership. And so can you go back 30 years and recall what influenced you to use that specific word? I mean, that even now, that's it's an unusual word to draw into leadership. And what were you trying to convey in using that word to your readers? When we asked people to tell us about their personal best leadership experiences, these stories all had some strikingly similar patterns to them, some themes that kept coming out. The five practices of exemplary leadership are what we eventually called those themes after many hours and weeks and months of discovery, reading story after story and interviewing person after person. But one of those five practices is what we ended up calling encourage the heart. And it's about those actions that leaders take to recognize individuals for their contributions and celebrate the values and victories. And we chose Encourage the Heart very consciously and very specifically because the common phrases at the time about reward and recognition really didn't capture the spirit of encouraging the heart. And we felt that it was in a missing ingredient in many conversations about leadership. In fact, while Encourage the Heart was one of the five major themes, it wasn't the predominant one at the time. Now, today, more and more, it's become more accepted to talk about it. But when we came to label it, we wanted to use a phrase that captured the spirit of each of these practices. And so we decided that we would start each phrase with an action verb, and we would have an object for that action. And so we talk about model the way. So model is the action verb, and the way is the object. So what are you modeling? You're modeling a way of doing things, the way of doing things as a leader. You inspire a shared vision. So inspire is the action verb and shared vision is the object. It is, it is the context in which you are inspiring others. You challenge the process, enable others to act, and finally encourage the heart. And embedded in the word encourage is the word courage. And the word courage has as its root origin the word heart, as in Richard the Lionhearted, as an example. And so to us, that was the perfect word because it captured the spirit of the notion of heart and courage being embedded in, in courage. And that extra use of the word encourage at the heart just gave emphasis to what it was that was the object of your encouragement, which is, you know, people don't talk about encouraging the head. <laughs> That's actually giving me my question. Why didn't you say encourage the, encourage the mind or encourage the brain or encourage the head? Yeah. yeah. So, so it was just a phrase that came to us that captured the intent and spirit of that practice. Well, to me, at least, there seems to be a great resistance even now to bringing heart into the workplace leadership. And what I mean by that is when you say encourage the heart, you're really talking about praise and recognition. But in the big picture, it's really about caring about the human being that you're managing and leading. 
And I think even today, through my own direct experience, I know that many people in business continue to think that this just sounds like soft management. You know, you don't bring the heart into leadership. Anybody who would say that fundamentally doesn't get business, who's never worked in business, that, you know, they're missing something by saying that. But you had the use your word, courage to use it 30 years ago. So I'm wondering if you found this to be true over the years and if if you're actually seeing any shift in how people are responding to that, to specifically that word and that idea and the concept of leadership. Well, just to go back, whenever in capturing, in deciding how to code people's responses to the question, what are you doing when you're at your best as a leader? any word like caring was coded into this practice. So we do talk about caring. You can't really sincerely encourage other people, recognize them, show appreciation for them if you don't care. And so caring is definitely a part of that. And caring, by the way, also comes from the word heart. (laughs) So when you care for someone, you have heart for them. And so all of those phrases which would fit into that category are part of what we discuss when we talk about encourage the heart, both at an individual one-on-one level, but also with groups. Many people probably have been watching the Olympics over the last couple of weeks, and you can see how much courage, heart, has to go into skiing downhill at 60 miles an hour. And when you're in front of thousands of people performing in millions around the world, how much courage that takes to be so vulnerable in front of others, even though you may be one of the most talented athletes in the world. And you see also how much they care for their sport to go through what they have to go through. And I think what we wanted to capture was that sense of caring, that it really is a at much deeper level of caring than just simply what we might think of when we talk about Valentine's Day. Uh, although, My wife and I, I think, have a deep level of caring, as I'm sure you do in your relationship. (laughs) uh, I think people sometimes demeaningly talk about this as hearts and flowers, but it's not at all about that. It really is about a deep sense of caring for the work that you do, caring for the people that do the work, caring for the people who purchase your goods and services, that level of deep caring for those individuals and those services and products that you produce is something that is, I think, only captured in a phrase like encourage the heart. You know, when you asked about have we seen any shifts, and and yes, we have, uh, but I do remember very early on, there was one of the largest global companies had us come in to talk about our new book, The Leadership Challenge, and I went to do a series of presentations, and after the first one, which was kind of a rehearsal, the staff who brought me in did a little debrief with me, and they, they said, we really like what you had to say, but can you change that phrase, encourage the heart to something else, because we don't say heart in this organization. (laughs) And I kind of laughed to myself and I looked at them and I said, you know, thank you for the feedback. But, you know, we did write a book and it's right there in the book. And I think people would be confused if they heard me not use that phrase when talking about something that's already in the book. So, no, I we're not going to do that. So there was a lot of resistance early on, and yet today we more openly, and authors more openly talk about love. Several books have been written on that theme in the workplace. That is the kind of caring that people have for their work and for the other people that they work with. And also, there's a lot more research, Mark, going on in gratitude 
and appreciation than there has been. In fact, one of the major research endeavors at uh, UC Berkeley in the Greater Good Science Center is on the whole issue of gratitude and the positive impact that that has on people at work. Well, it's all in the same spirit. Actually, I've wrote an article about some of the work that Dr. Keltner has done there and and know exactly what you're referring to. It strikes me as being, just, these are just deeply human things, but what strikes me as interesting is that you had that resistance. You know, could you please come up with some alternative because we don't use the word heart? And I had somebody tell me directly, you've got to stop using the word heart when you talk about leadership. Why don't you just say killer engagement? That would be much more compelling to people. So I completely understand where people were 30 years ago, and I'm hoping that we've made some progress here in recognizing that this is truth, what you're speaking about, and there's nothing inappropriate about it on any level, whether you discuss it or whether you put it into play. I want to change gears with you and talk a little bit about employee engagement. You know, Gallup has been studying this now for about three decades, and for the last 15 years or so, the numbers really haven't moved at all, uh, which is striking because so many companies have tried to do so many different things to move that needle, and yet we're really not seeing it. And so I'm wondering if you've given any thought to what you think the causes are for all of this dissatisfaction, and, and what would be your advice to leaders all the way up to the top of organizations if they could just do a few things to really move the needle? What would you recommend? Well, Mark... We've also done for 30 years some independent research on engagement. We've been calling it positive work attitudes, PWA. It's very similar to what Gallup calls engagement. Some of our items, they use a Q12. We have 10 items. Some of their Q12 items are more about leader behavior than they are about emotional response to work. But we, too, have been measuring this phenomenon called engagement. And what we find is exactly the same thing that Gallup finds which is that the factor which accounts most for whether or not employees are engaged or not in their work is leader behavior. Nothing accounts for more of why people are engaged at work than their immediate manager's behavior. And so if you want to improve engagement scores in organizations, you have to improve the quality of leadership that people get in their organizations. You can leverage a lot of things. You can raise pay. You can offer bonuses. You can create a playful work environment with games and wonderful environments. And all of those things can contribute a little bit, but they don't contribute anywhere near what leader behavior does to engagement. So when we write about it or when Gallup writes about it, we come to the same conclusion that to improve engagement, you must work on the quality of leadership that we have inside organizations. So I guess then my big question would be if, you know, and there's a study that Gallup did, or at least a component of their engagement study that showed that a striking percentage of people in America have actually quit jobs in order to get away from either a bad or even toxic manager, which mm -hmm. sort of suggests we've got a lot of people that really are ineffective and so if you are somebody responsible for hiring people into management roles, promoting people into management roles, or even at the senior level of an organization where you are creating the definition of, of what a good manager looks like, what would your advice be? In other words, what are the 
core requirements. What are the qualities, characteristics, attitudes, motivations, those kinds of things that you think are essential through all of your research? So in other words, binary. If people don't have them, then we shouldn't be putting these people into management because there's plenty of other jobs for people. But management is a sacred responsibility, as I think Warren Betta said, and I know you believe that. So what would you say to companies if they're trying to figure out how to make better managers in their organizations? Well, Barry and I, Mark, are behavioral scientists. So we look at behavior. We measure behavior. We don't look at personality. We don't look at other aspects of one's being. We look at behavior. Why? Because when you're looking at leadership, you're looking at what other people do outwardly. When you're asking for 360 feedback, for example, you're asking to what extent does a leader do X, Y, or Z? And so that's what we measure. And when we look at the behaviors of leaders, there are five practices that we've written about that to this day consistently get the same kind of response that we got 30 years ago, which is the more frequently you engage in model, inspire, challenge, enable, and encourage, the more engaged people are. And it is a question of frequency. You have to do it not just a little bit, not just every now and then. You have to be consistent in doing it every day, day in and day out. You know, many people, for example, think about inspiring a shared vision as something you do maybe annually. But in fact, inspiring a shared vision is, involves a daily conversation, reminding people of why we're doing what we're doing and what is it that we hope to accomplish over the long term with ourselves and with our customers and with our clients over the long term, with our communities, with our society, in order to have a better future. That's a daily conversation. So it's the frequency of behavior that matters the most. Now, within that context, we also not only ask leaders, what is it that you do on when you're at your best as a leader? We ask constituents to tell us what they looked for and admired in a leader. So we did delve into the issue of qualities that people look for by asking that question. And what, again, we found consistently over these now 35 years we've been doing this together was that people looked for four essential qualities in leaders. The first of those is that someone is honest and trustworthy. Essentially, if you don't believe in the honesty and integrity of a leader, you're not going to believe what that leader says. And so at a foundational level, that's top of the list. The second one is competence and expertise. You may be honest in what you're saying, and you may be totally committed in your head to doing something about quality, say a value might, you might hold, but perhaps you or the organization doesn't possess the skills or the tools to produce a quality product or a service. That's an issue of competence or expertise. So the two of those factors together, honest trustworthiness, competent expertise, account for more of what's called source credibility, credibility of the leader, than anything else. The other two qualities people look for are inspiring or dynamic, energetic, enthusiastic, so we call inspiring, the category of inspiring. And then lastly, forward look, having a vision of the future, looking outward five, 10 years down the road, being able to articulate a vision. So those four, honest, competent, inspiring, and forward looking are the foundational elements of exemplary leadership. And if someone doesn't work to develop that capacity, they will not have credibility to lead. If you had to pick, maybe ranking them, but I think for our audience, 
who are all aspiring managers, regardless of what level they're at. Where's the gap right now? Where are we the most efficient as a country, as a job family of leaders? In other words, amongst those four things, which one do you see we're doing the least most frequently? Well, that's there's actually a couple of answers to that question. And, and again, we look at things behaviorally when we try to answer these questions. If you take a look at the five practices of exemplary leadership, one of those practices inspire a shared vision, responds to the qualities people look for of inspiring, dynamic, energetic, and forward-looking, those two together. And we talk about the behaviors associated with those when we talk about inspire a shared vision. That is the lowest scoring practice of all the practices. It's the one that leaders find to be the most challenging. When we ask why, people say because there's so much short-term pressure on organizations to respond to Wall Street that they really can't focus on the longer term. The best leaders don't think that way, but that's the excuse people give. It's not an excuse that there's pressure from the outside to deliver in the short term, but it's not a reason not to be focused on the future. And so that's the practice which shows up least frequently. On the other hand, I must say that one of the things that's most concerning to a lot of us is the extent to which trust has declined over the last few years. In kind of 2008-9, when the major recession hit, trust took a big hit, rightfully. People felt they could no longer trust major institutions or leaders of those institutions. And so we started to climb out of that hole. But last year, Edelman, who does an annual report called the Edelman Trust Barometer, reported that there was a dramatic reduction in levels of trust globally. And the United States suffered quite a lot. And what's most worrisome is that it was in a good economy. Meaning that while people are experiencing higher levels of employment and a little bit more confidence that they'll be able to keep their jobs, they don't have the same feelings about their leaders. They're less trusting. And so something is going on that is really quite injurious to this whole notion of honest trustworthiness. Do you have a theory? I think lots of theories, but the thing that is most evident is they're not seeing the behaviors that demonstrate honesty. But doesn't that suggest then that within the organizations themselves that companies aren't, that they're promoting people who are less trustworthy, that they're giving, they're looking away when leaders do either less than ethical or less caring kinds of practices and behaviors as long as they get the performance and get the numbers? Is that part of this? Well, just take a look at Wells Fargo Bank. Mm -hmm. It's something that I'm sure you know very well given Mm -hmm. your work in banking. Look at what happened there. Essentially... People were sold products they didn't ask for. And someone in Tide thought that was okay to promote. That's the kind of behavior that doesn't earn you high marks on the trust scale. We see that at the highest levels in government. There's an attack on the truth these days, and it's very disconcerting. And so people seem to be willing to win at all costs. Long term, this is unsustainable. It is unsustainable. I think many leaders don't realize how they are injuring their businesses and the economy and the reputation the longer they persist in behaving this way. How do you think, uh, if you're speaking to an individual manager, some of this is not within their levels of responsibility? Although, let's pin down the Wells Fargo experience because this has been something I think very few people know that this has been going on for well over a decade, that their culture was very much focused on not just short-term earnings, but 
to have sales and cross-sell ratios that were disproportionate to their competitors, which inherently drove up the stock price. And so everybody felt like a winner, even though they were doing it unethically. So that's how I think it became so pervasive is that people were saying, well, look, we're, we're succeeding here. Look what's happening. Our stock's going up and we're being well regarded. I actually asked Jim Clifton, who's the CEO of Gallup, I said, if you could pick one CEO in this country who you most admire, and this was a couple of years ago, less than a couple of years ago, and he said, Mr. Stumpf, who was the CEO at Wells Fargo at the time, and of course, that's unraveled. He's no longer in the position. It looks like he tolerated a tremendous amount of unethical behavior. So yeah. what would you say to a manager who is elbowing up to bad behavior and how do they stand up to that and still keep their job and still keep their reputation and their income? Because I think there's a lot of pressure to conform, even though they're conforming to destroy the trust amongst their people, right? I certainly understand the dilemma. And this is where it comes down to a very personal decision. Each of us has to make, Mark. If you're in a situation where the only way to survive it is to be less than ethical. You may have to make that choice for yourself and your family, but you also have to be willing to live with the consequences of that choice, knowing that when you go to sleep at night, that's how you behave, knowing that your children are watching you, knowing that people in the community are being harmed as a result. But if that's something you must do in order to survive, I can certainly understand the need that people have. But it comes down to a personal choice about how much do you really believe in those things that you say you believe in. And there are companies out there, particularly in a full employment economy, where you absolutely do not have to behave that way. You have choices. Maybe when the economy is lousy and tanking, yeah, you have to make more compromises but not in this kind of economy, I don't think. You say this lack of trust is unsustainable. What's going to uh, bring it to the surface here and force us to confront it? I wish I knew the answer to that question because I keep waiting. <laughs> I mean, people at Edelman are just as stunned as we are when we see this kind of thing. We read this kind of data and we wonder, you know, when will it turn around? When will it change? I don't know that I, I can't make a prediction but I also know that you can't continue to behave in ways that demonstrate to customers that they cannot trust you and expect them to continue to buy from you in the future. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because you connect into the experience that you had in your early days with the students sharing their, their most marvelous moment of leadership. And this component of a lack of trust certainly never got surfaced there, right? I mean, in other words, anyone who was writing something or reading their best experience was talking about moments where they had incredible trust with people. And that as a result, people were willing to reciprocate and do extraordinary things with them, right? So yes. um, it seems to me that when the economy inevitably reaches its peak and the stock market makes a correction and it's harder to get earnings than buying your stock back, that this is when I think it's, it's going to be the rubber hitting the road and companies are going to struggle because they're not attracting the best people because Absolutely. ultimately that trust piece is so important to people. So if you're speaking to an individual manager, Jim, what are some of the things that 
we as managers unintentionally do that could harm trust, not in the global scale that we talked about with Wells and that kind of situation, but just in terms of the day-to-day, what are some ways that we may harm our relationship with people from a trust standpoint and ways you think we might be able to improve it just by doing some simple things? I'm sure we've all had an experience like this, but I just remember something that happened the other day where someone that we have some dealings with in another another business was unwilling to admit that they'd made an error. Being unwilling to admit that you made a mistake when you know that you did and the evidence is right there in front of you that you did because of your pride or the fact that if you do, there's some issue that the organization might have if they admitted that they made a mistake diminishes trust. You do that enough times and you become less trusted. If you disclose information that shouldn't be disclosed, if you tell an untruth about a product or a service and what it will do. I mean, you just go through go through the list of what we look for in the dimension of honesty and trustworthiness and ask yourself, you know, what are the things that would diminish my trust in somebody if they behave that way? Not listening to other people diminishes trust, not being willing to be vulnerable in front of others and say, I don't know. When you do them, build trust. But if you do not do them, diminish trust other people have. Claim that you have the expertise to do something when you do not. So those are just some of the clues that people give off when they're behaving in ways that diminish trust. Excellent. Okay, Jim. Time for a brief departure from our great discussion. We're not going to break away for a segment that we call the Heartbeat Round. Our listeners are really interested in getting to know you a little bit more personally. So I'm going to ask you 20 quick questions in rapid fire pace. And uh, just give me the answer that instinctively comes to you for each question. And in other words, answer each one in a heartbeat. You ready? Ready. Okay. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? Harvard Business Review. Quality you admire most in other people? Humility. The activity that makes you come alive. Any kind of great performance, singing, musical, dancing, acting, athletics. <laughs> Greatest book you've ever read? The book that most influenced me in my career was James McGregor Burns' book, Leadership. Carrot or stick? Carrot. Best coach in professional or collegiate sports today is? Steve Kerr, head coach of the Golden State mm-hmm. Warriors. <laughs> Your usual Starbucks order? Well, I get my coffee at Pete's, but uh, when I do, I order a wet cappuccino. Very good. Hail Berkeley. The person today who's having the most positive impact on society. The same as this year's Time Magazine Person of the Year, hashtag me too. Meditation practice, yes or no? No formal practice in the traditional sense, but I find writing provides that vehicle for me. World leader of any era, and this would be business, government, spiritual, etc., that you most admire. Martin Luther King. Suit or business casual? Definitely business casual. (laughs) Quality that derails the most leadership careers? The inability to get along well with others. Hmm. Greatest piece of advice you've ever received? You can't do it alone. Favorite band or singer? Eric Clapton. Hmm. Company today whose leadership practices sets the standards for others to follow? WD-40. Quote that best captures your life philosophy? Good is not enough when you dream of being great. Favorite podcast? Freakonomics. Skill improvement you're working on right now? My short game in golf. The life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life? You can't do it alone. 
And what's the proudest accomplishment of your life, Jim Kuzis? My proudest accomplishment really is my family. But professionally, it was the development of the five practices of exemplary leadership, which is a framework that we've developed starting in 1983 and is still around today. Well, it's magnificent work. And thank you, Jim. Your answers to the heartbeat questions were wonderful. And I just have a few more questions to ask you before you go. So let's get back to those. I'm thinking if most people listening, you would say that recognizing employees is essential to their leadership and managerial success. I, I don't think there's any question that people understand that conceptually. But I'm wondering if, in your opinion, you think that most managers are not just good and effective at giving meaningful recognition, but if they're consistent in it. Is that something that we do well? It's kind of right there in the middle of the pack, Mark. It's not the lowest scoring practice. That's inspire a shared vision. And overall, generally, it's third or fourth on the list if I were ranking the five practices in terms of frequency. And so it's kind of in the middle of the pack. We're better at it or we're, we do it more frequently than uh, like inspire a shared vision, as mentioned to you before, and challenge the process. But we don't do it nearly to the extent that we should. And there's lots of positive payoff for doing it. When people demonstrate by their behavior that they are consistent in providing recognition to others and they're willing to praise and encourage others as human beings for the work that they do, people feel a greater sense of team spirit. People feel that their work is valued and they feel that the work that they're doing is more meaningful. Those are just some of the outcomes. And so it's no wonder that people who receive more appreciation, more encouragement, who are shown more gratitude for what they do, are more engaged than those who don't receive frequent encouragement and appreciation. Haven't you met managers who would argue that if I recognize people, if I praise too much, they're going to get soft around the middle and not perform? So I have to kind of dole it out. I just read an article recently by one of our other guests on the show. And the CEO was saying, you know, I'm very spare with recognition. Maybe two or three times a year, I'm going to give people that kind of expressions of appreciation and gratitude, which to me seemed like managerial malpractice. What do you think? I would completely agree with you. And that person predictably will have low engagement scores as a leader. You have to say thanks. Typically, the positive to negative ratio has to be at least three to one at work. So for every negative comment, there needs to be at least three positive. In a personal relationship, it's about five to one. And so if you like to dole out criticism or corrective comments, and you're not also giving three times as many positive, you are having a less engaged workforce. This is the data. Uh, This is not a personal opinion. And so anyone who is not doing that is exercising malpractice. And what I would say to that person to help them understand how it's not about being soft is, again, I'm sure you've watched some of the Olympics. When these elite athletes are doing their work, are people sitting there silent? Are they like saying nothing, doing nothing, sitting on their hands, just watching watching these performances? These are some of the toughest people on the planet. What are we doing? We're cheering, we're applauding, we're going, go, 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 go. That's it. That's, you know, and, and that's what exemplary leaders do all the time, is they give that level of encouragement. Exemplary coaches do the same thing. 
So I totally agree in the sense that this is what we do in the everyday lives. We do it in the arts. We, you know, we go to the symphony and we're applauding and we go to a sporting event and, you know, go to a, any Saturday afternoon soccer match of 12 year olds and the, the parents are screaming and yelling and it's the most important thing in their life. And, and yet they get back into work on Monday and we haven't been able to bridge that. So that heart element that is so prevalent in sports and the arts, why are we sort of reluctant to bring that into business? Well, I think it goes back to that story 30 years ago, actually more than 30 years ago, probably about 33, 34 years ago now, when I was at this very large Fortune 50 company, and they said, we don't use the word heart around here. I think the culture of business as always, you know, you hear the phrase, that's why they call it work. When we talk about work, it's not play, it's not supposed to be fun. These old attitudes still prevail in a number of organizations. I live in Silicon Valley, and I can tell you, when you go into a high-tech company, that's not how they feel. When you go to an Apple or a Google or you know, Microsoft, that's not the kind of environment that you experience. And among younger millennials, there's a much more informal, relaxed workplace. So some of these old norms will eventually be replaced by new norms around this. But there's still a hangover effect from those years ago. What would you say to somebody if they said, well, you know, Google with all those perks, Facebook with all those, Microsoft, you know, we're not like them. We're not that kind of a company. That's not replicable. Uh, what would you say in terms of mapping over their approach to leadership? I would say go visit WD-40. Hmm, right WD here in San Diego. Yeah, right down there in San Diego. And go listen to Gary Ridge, the CEO of WD-40, speak and see how he talks about his organization and his tribe, as he calls it. They have a teepee right in the, the headquarters building to symbolize that they're a tribe. They're a close-knit tribe of people. He uses this language all the time. He talks about it that way. And this is a company that makes this uh, oily fluid that probably every one of us has many cans of around the house. And that's their product. And yet they have made a conscious choice to create a kind of workplace where people feel engaged and want to come to work every day. I believe their engagement level, if I'm not mistaken, it's I'm gonna get I may get this somewhat incorrect, but I'm in the right range. It's somewhere between ninety five and ninety eight percent. Well they're repeatedly one of the best places to work and uh, yep. so but it's very interesting when you sort of underscore the fact that they don't really make a sexy product. They're not changing the world in terms of Google and Facebook, and yet they inspire people to do their work and to do it so well that the company is thriving, right? That's really kind of the, the payoff for Gary, but it's also the payoff for going to work every day. Absolutely. And Gary's just an extraordinary human being. He's on the top of my list of best CEOs in America and probably the world. And very few people know about him, but he is definitely an exemplar when it comes to leadership. Does he treat his employees like family? Is that sort of a component of this sort of very I, I heard that from you? Yeah. He uses the word tribe rather than family. That's the word they like to use. It's a very much of a family oriented organization. And why does that work? 
I mean, this is sort of, again, this pushes the envelope in terms of what we, we commonly believe works in business. Leave your troubles at the door. You know, this is work, as you were suggesting. And yet he's mm. sort of inverted it by saying, hey, you spend more time here than anywhere else in your life. And we're connected here. We need to collaborate and cooperate in order to succeed. So we're a tribe. And if we succeed, we all succeed, right? That's sort of his ethos. But that's still not common thinking in business. No, one of the things that human beings need in order to be engaged in their lives is a sense of belonging. And because we spend more hours at work than any other place, when we get to that age and go to work, we spend more hours there than anywhere. If we don't have that sense of belonging at work, it's going to show up also at home. And it's going to create problems for individuals who don't experience that outside of work. And so it's very important to social well-being that people feel a sense of belonging when they're at work. Very interesting point. Well, before I let you go, I want to just ask you if, if there's any question that I didn't ask. Is there something that, uh, you know, we, we got close to, but I didn't really pin down with you that you want to make sure you express before we go, Jim? Well, I always like to remind people of the secret to success in life, if that might be of interest to you or your... Everyone is interested in what makes a successful life. So you've got me sitting on my toes here. Well, and this really speaks directly to the heart of your questions, pardon the pun. But when we interviewed Major General John Stanford very early on, in exploring this topic of personal best leadership experience. And we interviewed him about his. He was a major general in the United States Army. He had served previously you know, several tours in uh, battle. He was head of military traffic management command, he, which was responsible for the shipping of all the goods that uh, military ships around the world. He was head of the Western area for the United States and was talking about his personal best And I got to the point of closing the interview, and I said to John, if you were to give advice to anyone who aspires to become a leader, what would you tell them? What advice would you give them based upon your experience in the military at the time? Subsequent to the military, he left and was a civilian leader and was a superintendent of schools as well after the military. But he replied at that time, when anyone asked me that question, What is it going to take to be successful in my career? I tell them I have a secret to success in life. The secret to success is stay in love. Staying in love gives you the fire to really ignite other people, to see inside other people, to have a greater desire to get things done than other people. A person who is not in love doesn't really feel the kind of excitement that helps them to get ahead and lead others and to achieve. I don't know any other fire, any other thing in life that's more positive and exhilarating a feeling than love is. No, Mark, I did not expect to hear that from a major general in the United States Army, but that's what he said. And in reflecting on that comment, staying in love is exactly the right answer for everyone if you want to be successful in life, if you want to know the secret to success in life. Stay in love. Stay in love with the work that you're doing. Stay in love with the people who do the work. Stay in love with the customers who use your products and services. Stay in love with the thousands and thousands of people in the community who benefit from the work that you do. Stay in love also with yourself and with those that you work closely with on your team. And I think that's probably the single best advice anyone ever gave us 
and is the that is the only story, Mark, that we consistently tell now in six editions of the Leadership Challenge. That's a fantastic story. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking that one of the great surprises for me has been to uncover an understanding that within the military, that there's no hesitancy to care about their people. They treat it as a brotherhood. You know, you're going out to battle and you're protecting one another and they treat that as an incredible responsibility. And so when you talk about heart, it's like, of course, we go into business and all of a sudden we get uncomfortable. But in the military, as your brilliant story just illustrates, they're very, very comfortable with it. So thank you for ending with that. And thank you so very much. It is an incredible honor to have you on the show, Jim, and uh, keep up the wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. Before we end today, I want to thank my producer, Eric Oz, my site manager, Randy Yant, and my friend of friends, Ken Boynton, for all his incredible help on this podcast. And until next time, always remember, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now, and thanks so much for joining us. Mm-hmm.